Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Question That Hurts. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 26, 2019. If you've spent any time reading the Gospels, then you know that Jesus asks in-your-face questions. Do you love me? Why are you so afraid? Are you also going to leave? How long shall I put up with you? Do you still not understand? But the question he asks in this week's Gospel story might be the most jarring of all. The setting in which he asks it is Jerusalem, near a pool by the Sheep's Gate. In the five porticos by the pool, the chronically sick and disabled of the city lie waiting. Rumor, legend, or tradition has it that an angel visits the pool at random times, stirring up the water and giving it healing properties. The first person to step into the pool after the angel disturbs it receives healing. In our story, Jesus visits this outdoor nursing home, finds a man lying by the pool who has been sick for 38 years, and approaches him with a question. No introductions, no small talk, no sermon, just a question. Do you want to be made well? Is it just me, or is this an uncomfortable-making question? How would you feel if you were unwell for close to four decades, and a stranger came along one day, and asked if you really wanted to get better, implying that your ongoing sickness was at least partially your fault, implying that you were benefiting, consciously or unconsciously, from remaining sick, implying that you were somehow invested in your brokenness, that you had stakes in it, that your identity was so wrapped up in your infirmity, weakness, or defeat, you couldn't imagine your life without your illness. How would you feel? How would you respond? Would you hear pure insult in the question, or would you hear a faint echo of the truth, the kind of truth that hurts? Let me be clear. I don't believe that Jesus is blaming the victim in this story. All four Gospels attest to his deep compassion for the sick and the disabled. Not once in Scripture does he respond to pain or illness with contempt, mockery, or condescension. Not once does he tell a sick person that her illness is her own fault. In fact, he corrects that cultural misunderstanding about disease and disability at every opportunity. All of that to say, I trust Jesus' heart and his motives enough to take his question in this gospel story at face value. When he looks at the man who has been languishing by the pool for 38 years, he sees more than sickness. He sees defeat. He sees resignation. He sees psychological and spiritual stagnation. He sees a man whose hope has dwindled, a man whose imagination is atrophied to such a point that he can't even articulate what he wants for his body, his soul, or his future. How do I know this? Well, notice that he doesn't answer Jesus' question. Do you want to be made well, Jesus asks, and the man doesn't say yes. Isn't that odd? After 38 years of intense suffering, he doesn't say yes. Instead, he gets defensive. He explains the mechanics of scarcity in his nursing home. I have no one to put me into the pool. He makes a compelling case for the cutthroat unfairness of the world. While I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. He invites pity. He hems and haws. He dodges. In short, he avoids answering the question Jesus actually asks, which isn't a question about the man's circumstances at all, but a question about his heart, his identity, and his desires. What do you want? Has Jesus ever asked you this question? Do you want to be made well from all that stymies, hobbles, paralyzes, and diminishes you? Do you want to stand up? Do you want to walk? Do you want to move? How have you answered these questions in the past? 
How would you answer them today? Do you know? For me, the question stings because I know exactly what it's like to say I want out, to say I want freedom, to say I want healing, and not quite mean it. I know what it's like to cling to brokenness because it's familiar. I know what it's like to make victimhood my identity. I know what it's like to benefit from the very things that cause me harm. I know what it's like to sink into self-pity. I know what it's like to assume that everyone else has access to a magic pill I'll never get my hands on. I know what it's like to decide that I'm doomed to sit at the very edge of healing for the rest of my life and never attain it. For me, the question stings because the very idea that God cares about what I want, that he's curious about my desires, that he wants me to recognize and articulate them, blows me away. But if I'm willing to sit with the uncomfortable truths at the heart of this week's gospel story, maybe I can come to know that Jesus' desires for me aren't murky and two-sided like mine are. He wants me to be made well, period. He wants me to walk again, to thrive again, to live again. He wants to deliver me from the paralysis of my past, my baggage, my fear, my laziness. He wants me to want and to want fiercely. He wants me to say yes. Do you want to be made well? Yes. If there's anything more remarkable in this gospel story than Jesus' question, it's what happens after he asks it. Stand up, take your mat, and walk, Jesus tells the man, and the man does exactly that. At once, John tells us, the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Notice that the man never asks for healing. There's no indication in the story that he even knows who Jesus is. Notice that Jesus makes no reference to belief, as he often does when he performs a healing miracle. He doesn't tell the man, your faith has made you well, because that would be a lie. Notice that Jesus doesn't dwell on the man's past. He doesn't dredge up the loss and waste of the 38 years the man can't get back. And notice that he doesn't heal the man on the man's terms by helping him into the pool when the angel stirs the water. Jesus simply tells the man to get up and walk, and he does. What I take away from this story is that Jesus is always and everywhere in the business of making new and making well. His desire to heal is intrinsic to his character. It doesn't depend on me. In other words, do you want to be made well is a question he will never stop asking, because it's hard, his heart's desire is for my wholeness, my freedom, and my thriving. And he understands that there is painful, surgical power in the question itself. Confronting the zinger question of what we want, what we really want, is how the work of healing begins. For books this week, Dan reviews The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. Not long ago, I met a scholar from Norway who was spending his sabbatical at Stanford University. As we chatted, he made an observation about the United States that has provoked my thinking ever since. He said, Here in America, you hate government. In Norway, we love government. Incredulous, I asked if he was serious, to which he responded, Yes. At a minimum, as Michael Lewis observes, Americans have a love-hate relationship with the idea of a federal government. In some ways, it is too close and invasive. It meddles in our lives with all sorts of regulations and laws, on the other hand, we blame government for being too absent and invisible. We're quick to blame it when it doesn't solve important problems, like responding to Hurricane Katrina. We don't celebrate people who have devoted their time and talents to civic service. We don't honor government employment as a noble and even necessary calling. We remain ignorant of how government works and how it provides essential services that the private sector cannot, will not, and even should not fill. According to Michael Lewis, Donald Trump never had anything that was remotely close to a normal transition team, 
when he became the leader of the most powerful, most important, and most complicated government in the world, two million employees and 4,000 political appointees. This was partly because Trump never wanted or expected to be president. He hadn't even prepared an acceptance speech. But it's far worse than that. Trump has remained willfully ignorant about how the federal government works and why it's important. He actually shut down the transition team that Chris Christie had organized. Consequently, as Lewis documents in his book, when Trump became president, almost no one showed up to get briefings from the outgoing Obama administration. Many dozens of essential positions remained unfilled, and some of those he did appoint to important posts were corrupt and incompetent. Nonetheless, and contrary to my expectations, Lewis's book is really an encouraging read about the many unsung heroes, people of tremendous talent, dedication, and noble motives who serve in our federal government. We're familiar with many of the acronyms, like NASA, but many others do essential work we never consider, like the Patent Office, those in charge of the 2020 Census, or the 17 national labs that are run by the Department of Energy. The title of Lewis's book comes from one of his many interviews with inspirational civil servants. With John McWilliams, the first ever chief risk officer at the DOE, he wanted to know the top five risks that keep him up at night. Those would be loose nukes, North Korea, Iran, the security of our electrical grid, and then something that sounds very mundane, project management. Like cleaning up the environmental disaster in Hanford, Washington, that was left behind for making nuclear bombs in the 1940s. In other words, the fifth risk of program management is a metaphor for all the existential risks that you never really even imagine are a risk, and that require a robust federal government to address. It's a places in our government, writes Lewis, where the cameras never roll that you have to worry about the most. Under the current administration, more than ever. For films this week, Dan reviews Sacred, Milestones of a Spiritual Life. This 86-minute documentary by PBS was released on December 11, 2018. It's a robust affirmation of what so many of our secularist friends seem unable to grasp, which is that virtually all people from all times and places have always been religious. Academy Award-winning director and producer Thomas Lennon sent over 40 film teams to 25 countries to capture the everyday faith of ordinary people. The movie doesn't try to untangle the conflicting truth claims among religions, like polytheism versus monotheism, nor does it delve into the sociopolitical expressions of religion, like sacred violence. Rather, it's a positive pushback against all the negative connotations that are associated with religion in our cultural conversations. As one reviewer put it, the movie is a celebration of religion and purely observational, a kind of National Geographic travelogue, rather than a critique of religion. With no narrative or any explanation by experts of what we are watching, Lennon lets the images speak for themselves to affirm that religious faith is a primary human experience. The film is organized around three themes, initiation, practice, and passage. I watched this film from the PBS website. And lastly, for poetry this week, Rest Home by Christian Wyman. At the rest home, rest is precarious. Limbs and time spasm and for a time vanish. Then the little uproptures resettling as of dust deep in the unhappened avalanche. Already not yet noon, and a line of squeegeed people rots and totters, tilts and mutters outside the dining hall. Ant bites of irritation crawl all over the attendant's skin. Will she scream and fling them off? Will the earth open and God swallow this debacle of animal, these last crushed cricket twitches of existence, 
testifying less to survival than simply to less. No. The doors open as they always do. The heart softens as it often does. And into a dim, because limp, the loved and the unloved, some hungry, some not, but each with a place they know today, each of a mind to stay. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 26th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.